Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is the show where we are exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country as divided as our country has become. Now, race and racism are undeniably important issues in our country, and you got to talk about that stuff. But often when we talk about race in America, we do so in terms of black versus white, as if there's only two races in the country. And you and I both know it's a lot more complex than that. It's a lot more nuanced than that. And when we talk about race in that way, too many people are left out, too many groups are left out, too much truth is left out. And people who play a critical role in American life who often get erased are Asian Americans. Now, the Asian American experience has been getting a little bit more attention recently, but that's not necessarily a good thing because what's driving the attention are these horrific hate crimes that have been coming down on the Asian American community, these violent attacks, other forms of anti-Asian racism, which are a direct aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic and President Trump and other people calling it the China flu and Kung flu and the China virus, all that stuff just created an awful lot of negativity against Asians, and they paid a big price. You saw these viral videos of attacks on Asian Americans, including Asian American elders. They've been all over the internet. And some of those attacks, I'm ashamed to say, were carried out by black and brown people. And so this is, you know, violence among people of color. You know, so I think it's time for us to talk about race in a way that includes more people. And I also want to talk about the relationship between African-Americans and Asian-Americans because we have tensions. We also have a lot of solidarity. And as racial minorities in this country, we're bonded by some of the same kinds of experiences, but we're also often pitted against each other as if it's like a zero-sum game. And both sides are often guilty of stereotyping each other, misunderstanding each other, even attacking each other at times. And that's why I wanted to talk today to my friend, Lisa Ling. She is a courageous journalist. She's a media star. She's an author. She's an activist. She's a mom. She's an amazing human being. And she's Asian American. And she stands up for her community. I think that over the years, people have come to trust me to tell their stories responsibly. And I think a lot of that has had to do with the fact that I I felt marginalized growing up in my early life. But to to speak on behalf of my community and to speak out against this violence that I couldn't even comprehend myself was terrifying. I mean, I was getting called to speak out on news programs and I had no choice but to say yes, because who else was speaking out about it? She also has been a tremendous ally. She's been a real bridge builder, in fact between Black and Asian communities. And I see her as one of the great examples in our time of somebody who really enacts the principles of solidarity. 
And when I say solidarity, I use the word in the way that the great African revolutionary Samora Machel used it. He defined solidarity as an act of mutual aid between two forces pursuing the same objective. I'll say it again. Solidarity is an act of mutual aid between two forces who are pursuing the same objective. So solidarity is not charity. Solidarity is a strategy. I'm not helping you. You're not helping me. We're helping each other because we both want a country that works for more people. We both want a country where our kids can thrive. We both are pursuing the same objective. So we're working in solidarity. I want you to keep that definition in mind as you listen to my conversation with Lisa Ling right after this break. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. I am so happy to finally get a chance to talk to you. One of the things that I admire about you so much is that you're always using your platform for good. You're using your platform to tell stories that people aren't hearing from, you know, giving voice to people who maybe don't get a voice. And also you try to bring people together. And I think especially now, you know, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, sometimes we get pitted against each other. And I wanted to just talk about a number of things. I really wanted to talk about that. And especially given the amount of, frankly, violence and discrimination that's being heaped upon the Asian-American community. It's always been there, but it seems like to me after COVID, it went to a different level. So I want to talk with you about that. For people who may not be paying attention, it just gives a little bit of background on this wave of, of hate crimes and hate violence and intolerance that your community has been facing. Well, first of all, Van, thank you so much for having me on today, but also thank you for just being the constant friend and advocate that that you've been to the Asian American community. You know, I think that when COVID became rooted in this country and really around the world, and our, our politicians at the highest levels started to so vociferously blame China at a time when I believe there could have been so much more done in this country. You know, it, it really seemed like a deflection of responsibility 
when people like President Trump started characterizing this virus that had a name as the Kung flu or the China virus. And I, I think it became weaponized. And since that moment, attacks on Asian Americans and Asians around the world increased quite exponentially. And it really was a shock to so many of us in the community. How could this be happening today? How could our community, just based on what we look like, be scapegoated and attacked? And I think there was this realization that Asian Americans, AAPI people in this country, have really been scapegoated and discriminated against since Asians first set foot in this country. But because AAPI history isn't taught in schools, it's literally been erased from our history books, the contributions that AAPIs have made in this country, but also the egregious levels of, of discrimination that the community has endured. There's no frame of reference for it. And so that's why I think it became such a shock. I mean, when I think back on my educational life, I can't think about a single AAPI individual that I learned about who had made significant contributions to this country. If I had learned about a single one, I may have felt more firmly rooted in my own country. I mean, even though growing up, I was a popular kid, I had a lot of friends, there was always something about me that I couldn't change that made me feel so different from my neighborhood and, and my physical community. And I was constantly reminded of that difference. And I think so many of us have, have, have lived with those sort of microaggressions throughout our lives. And the, over the last couple of years, there's just been this realization that this is just part of a pattern that has been ongoing for, for decades. Well, you know, it's um, always a shock, no matter who you are, where you come from, when something like this happens and you're like, oh, second, I'm just minding my own business. We're going about life. We're raising kids. We're paying taxes. We're doing what we're supposed to do. And suddenly you have somebody like the president of the United States who is taking a virus that doesn't know where it came from. You know, the virus is not, <laughs> the virus has no passport. It doesn't have an ID. It has no facial features. It doesn't speak any language. It's a virus. <laughs> And then he's saying this is a China virus. I and mean, I can't imagine if he had said this is like an African-American virus. And so for everybody who gets this should be suspicious and mad at black folks. And you're walking down the street and there are people mad at you and you have literally done not a one thing wrong. <laughs> um, but that's the kind of stuff that was being stirred up. And I think that, you know, this anti-China sentiment, which is now kind of, you know, both parties are, are, are pushing forward. I think for political purposes and maybe for some economic purposes, but the social impact is, is really horrific in that it's not just, you know, some mean guy at the bar. You have the top, top people in society that seem to be really reckless with how they're approaching some of these issues. Well, and it's just become so, so easy to demonize China. And it's not just coming from people who believe that China had some culpability in this virus's spread, but now these threats of economic challenges to the American economy and the blame that's being directed at China. Now, I have no love for the Chinese government, but you're right. There is this recklessness in the way we refer to China that inevitably trickles down to Asian people. And because historically, the AAPI community has not been as 
involved in the political process. There hasn't been as much representation in really all facets of business and life in this country, because I think there has been this this sense of non-belonging for so long that it's really it's really just shaken us up. But at the same time, it's really galvanized the community. And because the Asian American community is so diverse and so disparate, I mean, we're talking about a population of about 23 million with origins in so many different countries, with so many different cultural backgrounds and distinctive languages, that for the first time, at least in my lifetime, I've really seen this incredible coming together of of all of those who fall under the Asian American Pacific Islander diaspora. And that has been the incredible silver lining and, and, and moving aspect to all of this. Now, you played a big role in that. I mean, you act like it, like you were watching it on TV or it just kind of happened. Like, I really <laughs> like looking at this stuff happen. <laughs> Actually, you're one of the main people <laughs> pulling folks together, as you often are. Talk a little bit about the, uh, the Asian American Foundation, which, you know, to me just came out of nowhere, this really powerful movement that brought together Asian American leaders and allies saying, listen, cut it out quit demonizing people. And there was a media aspect. Just talk a little bit about why you did that, how it came together. Give people a little bit of behind the scenes because organizing isn't something that just happens. It's not like the weather. People have to do stuff. So talk about what you did. Well, Van, I mentioned that so many of us in the AAPI community have have just grown up dealing with microaggressions and aggressions throughout our lives, you know, underhanded comments, and even some that have been very overt and been on the receiving end in some cases of violence because of our ethnic background. Have you been a recipient of those kind of comments? Just give me an example. I, don't, I think people look at you and think, who is going to say a mean thing about Lisa Ling or say something out of pocket? I'm sure it's happened a thousand times, but you're such a beloved person. Sure. Well, when the pandemic first got rooted, uh, I received emails accusing me and everyone who looked like me of bringing this virus to the country. Some even wished harm on my family, literally saying, you brought this virus. You know, I hope your kids die of this Wuhan virus. And so for me, the hate was in the form of emails or or messages on social media. I have not been on the receiving end of violence, but I have been on the receiving end of, of, of microaggressions throughout my life. I mean, I was literally teased every day of my middle school and high school life. It wasn't malicious teasing. As I said, I had a lot of friends. I was a fairly popular kid, but I was reminded daily of the fact that I looked different from everyone else, that 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 my house smelled differently because my grandmother was always cooking Chinese food that really sticks to you. And even when I, I was on the job, I was working for Channel One News, which is where I got my start in journalism. It was a show that was seen in middle schools and high schools across the country. And one year, Rolling Stone magazine, they have this issue called the Hot List every year, and they named me Hot Reporter one year. And someone at my place of work cut that article out, drew slanted eyes over my eyes, and wrote, yeah, right, and put it in my mailbox. I was in my early 20s when this happened. So I have been on the receiving end of discrimination based on my ethnicity and what I look like all my life. But when the attacks started to become violent and when the president, with such contempt, would just express his his revulsion about this virus and characterize it as, as, as the Kung flu, 
I couldn't help but speak out because Van, you you know as well as I do what 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 good is having a platform if you don't use it for good? And to see members of my community be so brazenly attacked, so many of our elderly, our precious elderly in our community. You know, I, I think that I've gotten fairly decent at telling other people's stories. And I think that over the years, people have come to trust me to tell their stories responsibly. And I think a lot of that has had to do with the fact that I, I felt marginalized growing up in my early life. But to to speak on behalf of my community and to speak out against this violence that I couldn't even comprehend myself was terrifying. I mean, I was getting called to speak out on news programs, and I had no choice but to say yes, because who else was speaking out about it? And my legs were literally shaking under my desk because it was so, I was just so confused and confounded by how this could be happening. And through it all, this amazing community came together of a a number of other APIs who who work in the industry. And we started to talk every night. We set up these Zooms where we were talking about strategy, messaging, how we think these acts of violence can stop. And it's really been an incredible experience to see this community come together and for the first time in my life to really not feel alone in this fight. I mean, Van, I, I, I have been someone who because there were so so few people who looked like me in my business throughout my career, I've been so cautious about drawing attention to my ethnicity, to my gender. I just wanted to be recognized for doing good work. To bring these issues to the fore has been very uncomfortable but necessary. I hope that I've inspired people in my own community to no longer be content to sit on the sidelines. And, you know, I think what happened with George Floyd also galvanized all communities of color, you know, to see people of all different ethnicities and backgrounds take to the streets and protest the injustice of what happened to George Floyd. That really planted seeds in all of our our heads and our minds and, and propelled us to never want to stay silent anymore. Well, you know, that was a, a big moment of, of real multiracial unity. And I think it, it was a moment where people felt like, hey, enough is enough. We need to stand up. I think for the black community, speaking up, marching, it's a big part of our tradition. I think you're correct. I think for a lot of Asian families, maybe especially with the numbers being so much smaller at first, felt, hey, let's put our head down, work hard, demonstrate that we can be a part of the country make a contribution, don't rock the boat. And that strategy, I think, has paid off in some ways. It's also then when it got tough, made you more vulnerable because you didn't have the traditions of being able to to stand up. But let's just talk about that because, you know, you wind up with this sort of model minority designation. And I just want to talk about that because it blends over now into what I want to talk about with black folks. That's a tough designation because it's it's a compliment it's also a backhanded compliment because it's a compliment saying you guys are the good minorities, not like the other, you know, not like those black people, not like those Native Americans, not like those Mexicans. You guys are the model minority. It's a compliment. And yet at the same time, it's not as straightforwardly positive because, you know, it's also a wink and a nod that at least you're not like them. Well, yeah, sure. And it was a it was a it was a totally convenient construction. Right. It evolved. It was a characterization that evolved in the 60s when, you know, 
those black people had taken to the streets demanding more freedom and more rights. And look, we, you know, we had over 120,000 people of Japanese descent during World War II who, for the most part, after being incarcerated for years, went back to their lives, even having lost everything. Why can't you be more like them? Right. And just kind of go back to life and put, keep her head down and and work hard. Look, my parents generation, my grandparents generation, who certainly felt so inhibited and felt so outside of the political process when they first immigrated and were making lives in this country, it was easier, quite frankly, to just keep their heads down and work hard and not cause a stir. But first of all, that characterization, it just isn't even true. I mean, there are significant numbers of AAPIs who are living in poverty. In fact, the widest gap in income inequality is in the AAPI community. The wealthiest Asians are very wealthy. The poorest Asians are incredibly poor. And so working to debunk that characterization is something that we all have to work hard to do because it's not even true. And it has really driven this wedge between the AAPI community and other communities of color. And I think we're seeing the consequences, or we have been seeing the consequences of that in that I think some people have said to themselves and to others, this isn't our fight. <laughs> you mean the fight for racial justice, the fight for inclusion? or Yeah. When Asian people started getting attacked, I think there were some in the Black community that said, this, this isn't our fight. Where were they when we were demanding freedom and justice, right? And so one thing that I think it's really important to keep in mind is just that the, the Asian community, the AAPI community is, again, so diverse economically. It's so diverse ethnically. And the experiences of the Korean community here in Los Angeles is very different than the experience of the Chinese American community in Los Angeles. And lumping all of these communities together it's just unfair. I mean, you're characterizing the actions of a few, right, to reflect the entire community, and that just isn't fair. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the Nintendo Switch system, there's so many worlds you can explore. Like Hyrule, where I can fight enemies and save the kingdom with Link. <laughs> That sounds adventurous! Or my very own island in Animal Crossing New Horizons, where I can fish whenever I want. Whoa! Look at the size of that thing! You can find even more worlds to explore on the Nintendo Switch system. Games rated E to E10+. Games and systems sold separately.
one of the big problems that we have is people say, well, you know, where were the Asians, you know, when we were doing X, Y, and Z? Well, frankly, where were most black people when we were marching? People like all black people were out there marching. It was a very small minority of even African-Americans that took to the front lines and were vocal and visible. Most African-Americans were understandably quite afraid to speak up. And so it's always a small number of people in any community who stand up for what's right. And there were and are and have been uh, Asian American allies. I remember my mentor when I was first coming into the civil rights movement was a guy named Ted Wong, Asian American guy, and another guy named Ignatius Bao, two Asian American lawyers at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights who worked for Eva Patterson, black civil rights leader. But they, they were my mentors. They taught me what I know. One of the things that I, I think is important to recognize is that you know, the divisions between our communities get held up a lot and they get po- you know, pointed to and focused on. But there are examples going way back of black folks and, and Asian folks working together, helping each other, sticking up for each other. Are there any examples of those uh, moments that keep you going or that are in the back of your mind that are meaningful? You know, I think about Vincent Shin and just you know, other times, other moments where uh, black Asian solidarity has been um, present, but maybe not focused on. Well, sure. I mean, there has been a long history of activism within the Asian community. But even as you said, you know, the, the, the numbers are smaller relative to the size of the community. But I have to say that, you know, after the killing of George Floyd, I was so moved to see how many young Asians took to the streets to walk alongside their brothers and sisters and, and, and to protest that injustice. And, and I just... You know, at every protest that I attended, I took notice of how many Asians were there. And, you know, there have been a number of unity marches throughout this country. There was one recently in Washington, D.C., where black, white, Latino Asians were standing together in solidarity to, you know, protest so many of the things that are happening right now to women and minorities and and and, and so on. When I became aware of Yuri Kochiyama and Malcolm X's relationship many, many years ago, I was so, so moved. I mean, I remember that image of Malcolm X on the cover of Life magazine the day that he was assassinated, and his head was being cradled by this little Japanese woman. And her name wasn't even mentioned in the article. But I remember thinking, like, who was that Asian woman holding his head? And, you know, when you get to know Yuri's story and and even though she endured internment during World War II, it wasn't until she moved to Harlem and she started studying the writings of Malcolm X and became acquainted with him and established a relationship with him. It wasn't until that relationship evolved that she really, really realized what an injustice those years of internment were for her community. He was the one who lit that fire in her heart and in her mind. And I will always be so inspired by their relationship, but also the activism of her children and and also the relationships that they have forged subsequent to Yuri and Malcolm's passing. It's interesting, Van, because I wanted to sell a documentary or a scripted series or film about Yuri's life. And you know, this was before Crazy Rich Asians, before there was this little opening for, for Asian-led projects. And so I approached so many Asian-American executives in Hollywood, and no one had any idea who Yuri Kochiyama was. But almost every black executive 
I talked to. They all knew. So when I think back on that relationship, that that fuels me with with so much inspiration. For me, I remember the 1980s uh, when Vincent Shin was murdered because uh, some out-of-work auto workers thought the Japanese companies were taking all the jobs and they thought he was Japanese and he was beaten to death and it was you know, horrific. I remember Reverend Jesse Jackson rallying the black community to say, this is a racial injustice and this has to be confronted and it has to be talked about. Now, Reverend Jackson in those days was as big as anybody, he was as big as Barack Obama. As big, I mean, he was a huge, huge force. And I remember him, the passion that he, that he and the compassion uh, that he had. And, you know, also you know, challenging people that they're you know, working people, you know, in Japan and they're working people here and they're all have struggles and are being misused and we shouldn't be divided against each other. So this, there's, there's been a long thread here of us coming to each other's aid and rescue. And it's never everybody. It's never everybody. Well, where, well, where was you, most of your family during any of these, this stuff? <laughs> In, uh, even your own cause. It's always that small, small number of people who say, you know what? We can be better. We have to do better. This is, this is wrong. I'm going to take a, take a stand. Most of those people never get their name in the newspaper, let alone the history books. But those people are the best of all of us. Yeah, thinking about that moment, Van, when when Reverend Jackson, you know, showed up in Detroit and he hugged Vincent Chin's mom and he held her in that embrace. That's an image that certainly has been seared into my consciousness. And, you know, look, I think that we can stand up for each other in our own ways, in our own communities, in our own homes. You know, my family, even though they were political, didn't really have a, a history of activism in this country. They did, you know, in the home country. But not long ago, I posted something about my grandparents. They, they, they came to this country very well educated, but couldn't get jobs working in the professional world because they were Chinese. And so they scraped enough money together to open the first Chinese restaurant in Carmichael. Then they opened one in Folsom. They didn't even know how to cook at the time, but it was the only way they could have a business. And months ago, I received a, a message on Instagram from a woman who said, you know, I always wanted to reach out to you because my grandmother would see you on TV from time to time and say, she comes from such good people because when my grandparents were traveling through California, they weren't allowed to eat in most of the restaurants because they were black. But your grandparents always opened their doors to them and even sat with them and shared a meal with them. And I always wanted to just thank you for that. You know, when you hear those stories of your own family or, or people in your own community that do just what they can, you know, they don't have to be these grand gestures. They can just be opening your door to someone who, who may be different or, or who, you know, who, who's not gaining entrance in other establishments. You know, it's those little gestures that really change perception and, and really affect people's hearts. There have always been Asian folks and Jewish folks and uh, Latin folks and other folks mixed up in the black movement in some ways because our, you know, we, we were only 13 percent of the population. Hard to pass legislation with only that when half of you can't vote. <laughs> so we've always had more allies than we've talked about. But this, this particular conflict between, I think, the so-called model minority focusing mostly on Japanese, Korean and Chinese folks who are doing well. Say that's the model. And then you black people are the kids with the dunce caps on. 
You're the non-model. You're the ones that we don't want anybody to be like. Now you guys go fight it out. And that, I think, is something that we've got to get over and get past. There are a couple of issues that come up over and over again. I just wanted to talk about them. You know, one is, I think, this question around education, affirmative action, standardized tests. From the black point of view, we say, look, these schools have left us out forever. These tests are discriminatory. They put us in schools that suck. We need some support getting our kids into these colleges. And we call that affirmative action. We don't want to leave it up to chance. We want you to take affirmative action, affirmative steps, positive steps to include our kids. And anybody who's against that, we think you're against black people. But that conversation can land very differently in the Asian American community where you have kids who've been able to figure out how to do well on some of these tests. Talk about that, how this conflict around, you know, butts and chairs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but even that, there's there's so much complexity to that issue because it is an issue that has really divided the Asian community. Because it is true, you see high rates of matriculation into the best schools in America among Asians. But again, let's not forget that there are large swaths of the AAPI community that are living in poverty, who don't have the same opportunities that even the middle class and wealthy Asians have had in this country. And so there's deep division within the Asian community. I mean, I personally am a huge proponent of affirmative action. And quite honestly, you know, at the, at the highest levels of education, I actually think just even thinking about the kind of environment that I want to be in <laughs> when, uh, when, when I am experiencing all that university and all that education has to offer. I want personally to be exposed to a great diversity of humanity at my institution of higher learning. And I want that for my own kids because ultimately we're not just talking about an academic education. You know, we're talking about just becoming a more well-rounded, more well-versed, a smarter person on all levels. And so those kinds of things are important. Now, I also do think that we should be paying more focus on more economic diversity as well at the university level, because I think that that's one of the reasons why I think in the Asian community it becomes so divided, because we discount the fact that there are huge numbers of, of AEPI Americans who are also living in poverty. On the one hand, you, you I think make the good point that all the kids who get to that university will be better off if you've got black kids there and Native American kids there and all kind of kids there, that just the, the standardized test scores by themselves, that shouldn't determine people's everything about their potential in their life. And it certainly shouldn't determine everything about that campus. But I mean, what do you say to an Asian mom who, who knows for sure that, you know, given her kid's SAT score, given her kid's GPA, that if her kid were a black kid, her kid would get into that college, but her kid's not going to get into that college. I mean, that's a tough conversation, isn't it? It is. And, and I try to not make too many sweeping generalizations. I and mean, what I would say to that Asian mom is, how much have you invested in helping your child improve his or her test scores? Because, you know, that is, is money that so many others might never even have the opportunity, a fraction of that amount to be invested in helping their own kids achieve so highly on their test scores. Another issue that's tough to talk about is, you know, you mentioned the violence against Asian 
American elders. I, I remember when that was at the peak and I was watching you posting on Instagram, just heartbreaking, unbelievably, grotesquely violent attacks. Some of the people doing those attacks were black people, uh, some Latin people. And that was, I know for myself, when, you know, back in the 90s when Latasha Harlan's young black woman who was shot on video uh, by a Korean grocer, that enraged the black community against all Koreans. It was, uh, I'm, I'm generalizing, but there was that, that, that feeling that that was such an unjust attack and quote unquote, those people should stop that, et cetera. I know for sure when you see video after video of police hurting black people, there's a feeling that comes up. And I just wondered when I was watching those videos, I felt outraged by what I was seeing. I also felt embarrassed that there were black people involved. And I also wondered if that was maybe adding to a sense of, of frankly, anti-black sentiment or anti-black fear in the Asian community and how that plays itself out. I'd be lying to you, Van, if I didn't say that that it, it has be, certainly become an issue. And even I have been severely criticized for not calling out the race of the attacker if the attacker may be black. You know, when when the young man shot up the spas in Atlanta, I didn't explicitly call out his race either. There are attacks on our community, and I'm going to call those out. And it's it's tricky. Again, I, I have been on the receiving end of, you know, uh, just so much criticism because I, I, I try to be <laughs> a bit more nuanced, right, because I don't understand the circumstances. And in New York City, for example— it's very clear that a number of people who have perpetrated some of these violent attacks are mentally ill. And we we are dealing with a mental health crisis in this country, but particularly in our cities and in New York City, which is such a dense environment and a virus that has been weaponized. And so to criticize an entire community based on the actions of an individual who may or may not be mentally ill. It's just, it's, it's, it's sticky, touchy territory. And I just try to be ultra cautious about being so specific about race. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's, this is tough stuff. I mean, I, and what I appreciate about you is just, you know, how thoughtful and how nuanced and how diligent you are. I mean, you, you, you know, wade into really, you know, choppy water. You deal with very, very tough stuff, and it's very hard to do it, and that's why a lot of people don't do it, and it's hard to do it with integrity in the way that you do, and, you know, to me, it's just very inspiring, I mean, to be very honest, you know, like, you know, you're using your platform for good, as you said earlier, you know, you're also a mom, you're raising kids in the middle of all this great work that you're doing, they're, they're growing up in all this sort of stuff, I mean, how do you help your kids navigate this in a way where they aren't? damaged anymore uh, than they absolutely have to be in a world like this? Well, my kids are young. They're nine and six. And it does keep me up at night thinking about the world that they are inheriting. And as an older parent, my husband's also older. You know, he's going to be 57 with a six-year-old. You know, our job is to be their protectors. What's going to happen when we are not around to be able to protect them any longer? 
And so I talk about the things that are happening in age-appropriate ways. You know, I do think that there's so many things that are against us right now. There's so many forces against us even engaging with each other right now, which is why I so adore you, Van, and appreciate your tireless efforts to get people to the table, to have conversations and to engage. You know, the fact of the matter is, we are not even thinking for ourselves anymore. You know, we are all addicted to our devices and social media. And, you know, the data that has been collected on us inevitably, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it spews information that is in line with the way you think and the values that you espouse. And again, you're not even thinking for yourself. This information is being handed to you on a platter by these algorithms. And it's incredibly dangerous. And I fall victim to it. I mean, I spend more time on social media than I should. But based on the data that these companies have collected on me, I know that the information I receive is different from the information that, that my more conservative friends receive. And so I have to try extra hard to be discerning about the information that I am consuming, but also that I am putting out there. And again, I mess up a lot because so much of this has become so just, you know, it's so visceral. And, and at the end of the day, we are about our values. And so when something conflicts with our values, then it's hard not to want to, you know, express it. But it's so, it's so important that we are aware and conscious of this sort of duplicitous thing that is happening and really try and figure out ways to think for ourselves. I think it's imperative for us to understand and 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 have conversations with and about people who think differently. Otherwise, you know, we are going to continue headed down this really dark path of division and it's not going to end well. I want to thank you for this interview. I also want to thank you. When I left the White House under fire and I was really, really depressed, the first public thing I did, I went to the Clinton Global Initiative and I was walking down the, the, into the hall and my head was low and I, I was, wasn't was sure if I was going to be welcome there. I'd been kind of, I was canceled. We didn't have the term then. I'd been canceled by right-wing media and I left the Obama White House under fire. And you walked up to me and you were so kind to me and you had this look in your eyes of just such uh, empathy and compassion. That was the first time we ever actually got a chance to meet. Those kind gestures that your grandparents were, were doing, you did for me. And it meant a lot. And I never forgot it. So, you know, let's just stay together. There are way more good people in the world than there are bad people. And there are way more kind people in the world than there are mean people. And um, you're one of the kind ones. And I appreciate you. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. You know, I absolutely love getting a chance to talk with Lisa. She's just a remarkable human being. If you want to join me in the Lisa Ling fan club, you should follow her work. You can watch her docuseries called This Is Life with Lisa Ling. She's been traveling across the United States exploring 
overlooked communities on that show since really 2014. She's been doing this for a long time. You can also tune in for her new series, Takeout with Lisa Ling, where she digs into the lives and the cultural contributions of America's Asian restaurants. Two fantastic shows, one fantastic human being. That's it for this week's Uncommon Ground. I'm Van Jones. See you next time. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Redbert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show, How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.